Amen. Amen. It's so um, great to be preaching about generosity when you get to be around so many generous people. And uh, you guys did it again. We asked for $15,000 for Agape, and you gave $15,632.51. So while we're celebrating big things in the church, let's celebrate, men, that the men's downstairs restroom is reopened. Yes. <laughs> well, that's not quite so big, okay? You probably heard in history of George McClellan. At the beginning of the Civil War, the thought was it would be a very short scrimmage, and it would, it would be over. But it became apparent that it was going to be an incredible battle. And, and President Lincoln looked out to the most qualified person he could find to lead the Union armies. It was George McClellan. He looked the part. He dressed with the perfectly creased uniform. He had been educated in Europe in the science of warfare. He was great at recruiting troops and drilling troops. In fact, people in D.C. would go outside the city just to watch him train and drill the troops. It was so absolutely precise. And yet, Abraham Lincoln began to have a problem with him because despite all of this, he wouldn't go fight. Uh, he, he might go a little bit, but he always would tell Lincoln, I need more, I need more, I need more troops, despite the fact there was a never a point in the history of his army when he didn't have more troops than the Confederates. Uh, Lincoln began to be very frustrated with him. One day he's out with a friend watching the drills, and Lincoln points to the, the army, and he says, now what's that? And his friend says, that's the Army of the Potomac. And Lincoln says, no, 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 it's not the Army of the Potomac. It is General McClellan's bodyguard because he won't do anything with it. In fact, McClellan's problem was that he thought the Army was his. He began to say over and over, it's my Army, it's my Army. And he could not force himself to put them into battle. You see, he lived under this false assumption. He thought it was his army. And President Lincoln had to fire him just for the battle to go on. Now, many of us as Americans live under a, also a false assumption. And this is not about an army, but it's about money. And the false assumption is that it's our money. In fact, we talk about it that, don't we? It's our money. And that's why we can't take this journey to generosity. That's why we stay frustrated because I think it's mine to keep. Now, Jesus did a lot of teaching about this. One of the most famous parts of teaching is found in Luke chapter 12, where a man tried to get Jesus to talk to his brother into giving him more than inheritance. And Jesus says, that's not my job. But what I hear is I hear a problem. And then Jesus told a parable, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He identifies the problem. And it, it, it's all kinds of greed. He doesn't want to miss any of it. For life does not consist in an abundant of, abundance of possessions. Your life's not measured by how much you have or don't have. And then he told this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? 
I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, all great conversation with himself. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there will be store, there I'll store more surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain, laid up for many years, everything's cool. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. He can't anticipate any other result. He's saved up, he's got it, and he's got more than he can even use. And then God comes into the story like a freight train. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then you'll get what you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Here's a man that seems to have prepared for everything except for the one thing we all know 100% will happen, which is death. You know, when we look into the story, if we were sort of outsiders looking in, we see this entrepreneur who makes so much, who builds so much, who saves so much, and then he sort of dies on the spot. I'm afraid my reaction might be, man, that is so sad. I mean, the guy finally had everything he wanted, and he wasn't able to use it. We would almost, in our culture, commend the man for what he had done. He looks, in our language, to be so successful. But his problem is revealed in the pronouns of this story. Fourteen times he says, I, me, and my. He does have that problem, that wrong assumption that it was all his. And God renders a final verdict over his life, you fool. So we need to go deeper in this. What did Jesus identify as the problem? Let's, let's try to diagnose this for a moment, okay? Because we've we, we got to diagnose it before we can deal with it, and then we'll get the prescription. First of all, here's the diagnosis. It's greed. And, and let me give you two diagnostic tests, okay, to help yourself. First is what Andy Stanley calls consumption assumption, okay? Say that with me. Consumption assumption. Say it, it's sort of fun to say. Consumption assumption. Now, here's what it is. It's the assumption that everything that comes to me is mine to use. I just assume that it's mine. That's a natural assumption. That's why the statistic last week was 20% of American Christians never give a dime to anyone else. That's why, even true in our church, it's about 50% of our members who actually give. Why? Because we have the consumption assumption that it's for me. It's mine. I'll use it however I want to. Maybe if there's some leftovers, I'll be generous. Now, the word here that Jesus uses for greed is simply a a word that means you've always got to have more. That here's the two words. It's never enough. Say that with me. It's never enough. You see, greed is not about whether you're rich or poor, whether you've been successful or unsuccessful. Anybody can be greedy, no matter what amount you have. Greed is that spirit that says, no matter what I get, I always have got to have more. You see, when this man's having this conversation with himself, he says, what shall I do? Did you notice? It never popped up in his brain, I'll give this to God. It never popped up, I'll give this to poor people. It immediately was about him and having more and more and more. You guys, let's let's talk about this for a moment. 
we applaud that. Now, you're not going to believe the analogy I'm about to use, and so I don't want it shared outside of these walls because I don't want to get in trouble. But I think Nick Saban sort of got this, all right? Anybody remember when Alabama won the first national championship? You remember what he said? He said, this is just the beginning. And so every championship, man, is just, there's so much pressure on this guy. After we beat LSU in the Sugar Bowl a few years ago for the national championship, someone interviewed him afterwards and said, what did you do after the game? He didn't go to Bourbon Street and celebrate. He didn't celebrate with the team. He went back to his hotel room, and he called recruits. He was just completely consumed that you've got to do more and more and more. Now, as an Alabama fan, I appreciate that, okay? So I take back any criticism I just leveled. But sometimes you actually do look at the man and you think, my goodness, he's been so successful, but can he enjoy it? And guys, if you have the spirit in your life that you've always got to have more, no matter what it is, you'll never be able to enjoy what you've got, and you'll never use it the way God wants you to. So, now here's the issue here. This is so difficult for us to diagnose because it's not it's sort of fuzzy whether you're greedy or not. In fact, this is the only sin that Jesus says, beware. And the word there means you better look closely. You better look on the inside. You may assume that you're not a greedy person, but that is not a good assumption. Now, what makes this different than other sins? My friends, if you're committing adultery, you know absolutely whether you're committing adultery or not. If you're stealing, you know whether you're stealing or not. If you're lying, you know whether you're lying or not. If you murder, you know. I mean, it's absolutely clear. There's a straight line here. Either you're doing it or not doing it. With greed, it's a little bit more difficult. It's not because you make money. It's not even because you save money. It's because of your attitude behind the money. And so, As we go into this message today, I think a good assumption for me and for you is that we may have some greed in our life. It's so subtle. You say, oh, buddy, come on now. This is what I hate about church. They're always talking about money. Can I have a time out here just a second? You cannot complain about that in this church. I don't talk about money hardly at all. In fact, the more I study this, the more I go, I don't talk about it enough. Because if you're uncomfortable with us talking about money, you would be super uncomfortable with Jesus. Because Jesus was very uptight about money. He talked about it all the time. Now, why would Jesus talk about that so much? More than baptism, more than communion, more than church. Why? Because it's a roadblock to really enjoying life. I mean, it's something that stands between you and I and living the abundant life. It's something that stands between you and I having eternal life. It's that serious. Because it, it's this roadblock. And Jesus says, I'm not trying to be mean to you. And he's not just trying to make us uncomfortable, neither am I. But what Jesus knew and what I'm learning is that for many of us, this is the greatest roadblock to us really going on this journey of generosity. It just stops us dead in our tracks. So what do we do about this? Let's um, look over the passage in, in the gospel, I mean, excuse me, in the, in the epistle of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And um, he's going to help us with a prescription. But first, let me, let me say this. Because we're about to read Paul. 
Paul's pretty serious about this too. Coloss- I was reading this week, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. This is why greed is so dangerous. Paul said, greed is idolatry. Here's why it's so awful. Because like the rich man, he was rich toward himself, but he wasn't rich toward God. It was that roadblock that kept him from a real love relationship with God. In fact, I I think we could say, because we live in Western free enterprise culture, this is probably the biggest collision between our culture and the gospel. And so Jesus was dead serious about it. And I hope you're challenged to be dead serious about it. And what I want to give you is Paul's answer, Paul's prescription for those of us that struggle with greed. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to start right there in verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. Let's stop there for a second. Who are these rich people? Because by any measure, almost everybody in this worship center is rich. I mean, most of us, we live in the top 1% or 2% of the world. I mean, most people could only dream about living the way we live. And so, so don't, often when I hear the word rich, what I always think is somebody makes more than me. Don't, don't think that today. Because all of us are, are tempted here. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, listen to this, they will lay treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So, how do we deal with wealth and money, no matter how much we have? Number one prescription is be thankful. He says God richly provides. If the problem was the assumption that it all belongs to me, the answer is the assumption that it all belongs to God. And out of that, I have a thankful heart. You see, being thankful is different than the consumption assumption, and it's certainly different than never having enough. In fact, being thankful is focusing on what you do have, not what you don't have. And that's why this holiday that we're coming up with this week is so important. I mean, I I think I could easily make a case that Thanksgiving is by far the most Christian holiday that we observe. Because the Bible, like... We were reminded by Carson a few moments ago. The Bible says this is a big deal. You're right. It's a big deal. There is no sin darker to God than ingratitude. And so you start off by being thankful. And I want to challenge you because I know how busy this week's about to get when you walk out of here. Are you going to really use this for thanksgiving? Thank God we have a country that wants to set aside a day to be thankful. Are you going to take advantage of it? Or is it just going to be about, you know, getting with family, cooking food, watching some ball games, and getting through it? Or are you going to stop and you're going to really have some gratitude? Gratitude about big things, gratitude about small things. I mean, just think, guys. It hit me a few years ago. When, When I walked in a grocery store with someone from behind the Iron Curtain when it came down. 
And they walked in our grocery stores, and they were absolutely amazed. They had never seen so much abundance. Are you thankful, even when the line's long in the grocery store, are you thankful that you live in a heated and air-conditioned house? Are you thankful that you do what most people in the world will never do, is drive your own automobile? Are you thankful for the clothes you wear? Are you thankful for the delicious meals you have? Are you thankful that the men's restroom is finally open? I mean, there's so many things to be thankful for. And guys, one of the things you need to do is learn to be thankful in big things, but also just every day, just go through your day being thankful. Now, number two, this one may surprise you. Be joyful. I hope you notice this. God's not anti-things. He's not anti-money. In fact, he said in this verse, he gave us all things for your enjoyment. The Bible does not, Paul did not say, if you're rich, you got to sell everything. Now, Jesus saw some real heart problems with some people, and he did. And, and for some of us, that might be all we can do to get over greed is just sell everything. But for most people, he says, you know what? If you're rich, you know, you can enjoy it. I mean, I've given it to you to enjoy. I mean, God's like we will be over the next month. When you pick out the perfect gift for someone you love and you get to see them enjoy it, you get great, great joy yourself. And God gets joy when you know you didn't earn it, it's not yours, it's a gift for you to enjoy. You know, this, this past summer, we, um, we have a, a wealthy friend who um, offered us a beautiful, um, I want to say cabin, but that would be terrible, a, a, a beautiful castle in Pigeon Forge. And it was just amazing. And so we were able to have, you know, for a whole week this summer, all of our kids and all of our grandchildren together. We, we could have never afforded it on our own. Now, what do you do in a week like that? You just stand amazed. You go, you know, I can't believe how nice this hot tub is. I can't believe there's a chair you can sit in and get a crazy good massage. I can't believe we can stand out on this balcony and see such a beautiful sight. You just, you just go through being thankful for every moment. But never do I think, oh, this is mine. I've earned it. No, you just are thankful for the one who gave it. Enjoy it, but remember who gave it. So that's number two. Number three is be humble. Do not be arrogant. The problem with the rich man was not that he was rich, but that he put his security and his trust in his riches. The truth is, all, everything you and I have can be taken away in a split second. How many of you watched those people in the fires of California walk out of those mansions, maybe holding an album of family pictures? And overnight, they lost everything. My friends, like it did a few years ago, the economy could dive tomorrow. And like many of you lost all of your retirement debt. My friends, if a terrorist is ever able to sneak an atomic weapon here in our country, it's going to be awful overnight. I mean, my friends, everything could change overnight. And if you're filling that void in your life with things, you are filling it with something that's uncertain, Paul says. It's uncertain because it's only temporary. The only thing to fill that void in your life is what is eternal, and that is God. So be humble. And then number four is about God. Be trusting. He says, put your trust in God. Because here's the reason that we can hold our possessions lightly. Here's the reason I don't have to get so upset when the stock market tumbles, and I don't have to get overly excited when it's up high. Because I know God always takes care of his people. 
In fact, I love what the Apostle Paul says about this. In, in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Listen to what he says. Whether well-fed or hungry. And then he says a verse that we abuse. For I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul didn't say that for you to quote and think you had super-duper powers. Paul said that so you know whether you're living in abundance or living in poverty, you can be happy and joyful because you've got Christ and you can handle everything. That's what he's saying. So put your trust in God. Hold things lightly because you know that God loves to give back to those who give. You have become a conduit of everything that God has blessed you with. And then number five, be generous. Be generous and willing to share. Now, I want to point out these five things we just talked about. We'll talk about it in just a second. The first four are just attitudes. You know, be thankful. Be joyful. Be humble. You didn't earn it. Don't pat yourself on the back like you're... And, and, and simply hold it lightly, lightly. Be trusting. Those are the attitudes that help us get over greed. But there's one action the Bible consistently says is the key to you getting past this roadblock that's stealing life to you, and that's for you just in action, just go out and be generous. Do it whether you feel like it or not. You see, write this down. The only way to overcome greed is by practicing generosity. As Nike would say, just do it. Why? Because it is that roadblock that's keeping you from being everything that you could be for God. So, we've got the diagnosis. Greed's a big problem. We got the prescription. There's some attitudes and actions we need to take. Let's, let's rejoice about the outcome. If you're willing to take God at his word, here's the outcome. You will move from generosity last to generosity first. You know, most of us are generous if we've got something left over after I've met all of my needs and wants. And then I'll be generous. But, but the biblical truth is, you need to be generous first. And here's what I believe. In the culture that we live in, and we're trying to stand out as being different and being Christians. The biggest mark that we are people of faith and followers of Jesus may just be how we spend our money. That, you know, if, we, if you and I, and I'm preaching to myself, every bit I'm preaching to you today, so okay? If I handle my money the same way everybody else does, that's not a Christian witness. But when someone says, I'll forego this, I don't have to have this. You know, I can live at a level beneath my income because I want to be able to be generous. That's what stands out. I love this um, story that was in Time Magazine. And the editor of Time Magazine is a man named Joe Klein. And he had been to Oklahoma after some recent tornadoes. And this guy who's not a believer says, he wrote, Funny how you don't see secular humanists giving out hot meals in a disaster area. You just don't see it. And even this guy had to be shocked. 
And then there's a guy actually writing in, in New York Times named Nicholas Kristof. And um, he writes about the way so many people make fun of evangelical people. He says this. He's a pretty honest confession. Nearly all of us in the news business are completely out of touch with a group that includes 46% of Americans. That's the portion in Gallup poll who say they're born-again Christians. He admits the common stereotype, the entire evangelical movement has been pillared among progressives as being reactionary, anti-intellectual, and if anything, immoral. But you see, Christoph got to know a famous preacher named John Stott. And then he wrote, this casual dismissal of evangelical people is profoundly unfair to the movement as a whole. It reflects a kind of reverse intolerance, sometimes a reverse bigotry, directed at tens of millions of people who have actually become increasingly engaged in issues of global poverty and justice. And then he writes specifically about John Stott. Mr. Stott did not preach fire and brimstone on a Christian television network. He was a humble scholar whose 50-odd books encouraged Christians to emulate the life of Jesus, especially his concern for the poor and oppressed, and confront social ills like racial oppression and environmental pollution. And then he says this in our defense. Evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities. More importantly, they're disproportionately willing to go to the front lines at home or abroad against the battles of hunger, malaria, prison rape, human tra trafficking, or genocide. And they are some of the bravest people on the earth. And then he confessed, I'm not particularly religious myself but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York City cocktail parties. Because this is the way an unbelieving world goes. You know what? These guys aren't just screaming at people. They're not out there just condemning people. They're actually the people getting dirty in generosity. So, what's the outcome? Second outcome, I moved from a greedy life to what Paul calls a true life. Because the thing about being greedy and being miserly is that it's miserable. Jesus said to the rich man, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You're not going to have life based on what you got. Paul said, take hold of life that is true life. You see, here's the question. Do you believe, do I believe the words of Jesus it is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, the Bible says, then you're going to find true life. Greed is so subtle and so tempting that often we overlook it. It's a roadblock to real joy. You see, we need to get serious about greed if we want to be serious about abundant life and eternal life. Because in the end, the biggest difference between the greedy life and the generous life will boil down to the two words that you and I will hear from Jesus. You will either hear, I will hear, either you fool or 
well done. And both of those have to do with what people did with the gifts that God had given them. Either you're going to hear, you're a fool for putting your hope in something that you know is going to go away. You're a fool for not preparing for death. Or you're going to hear, well done. Enter the joys of my kingdom. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic about this, okay? But I think the subject lends itself to drama. Jesus certainly gave it. You know what Jesus said about this? He says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And his disciples say, oh my goodness, Jesus, if that's true, there's no hope for any of us because like, like us, they were all rich. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. What's impossible with men is possible with God. It's only if we let ourselves be convicted. Jesus was rather dramatic about this. And, and today, to get your attention, I, I want to be just as dramatic with you. If Jesus were to come back right now, which of these words would you hear? You fool. You fool. Or well done. I'm not saying anybody in here is perfect. I'm sure not. Because like we're saying in this series, this is a journey to generosity. For many of us in this group today, you've got to start the journey. Because nobody really sees what you give. None of us want to know what you give. You are able to just go on without thinking about it. And I hope this dramatic lesson from Jesus is enough to wake you up and wake me up. So that we continue this journey. And Jesus is not trying to be dramatic to make you feel bad. He's not trying to be dramatic to make you guilty. He's trying to be dramatic because he knows this is the roadblock that's keeping you from true life. So today, if you're ready to be different than the world and follow Jesus, why don't you respond today and make a commitment to be generous? I think this first service is the first time we've ever had anybody on this extremely open row confess to being greedy. And maybe that's what you need to say. Or maybe today's the day that you just start following Jesus from the beginning. Or maybe there's something going on in your life that's so clouded everything that you're having a hard time even walking into Thanksgiving, and we need to pray for you before this week continues. If you need our prayers, why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?